Hello there. I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the top experts in mergers and acquisitions, and we're all about one thing here, and that's a clean exit for our owners and founders. Today, I'm joined by Sherry Yocum. Sherry is a principal of Ernst & Young's People Advisory Services, where she advises large companies on complex M&A transactions, change initiatives, and HR transformations. Sherry, welcome to the program today. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, what uh, a lot of people overlook when we're talking mergers and acquisitions, and it's largely with the press and so forth, is you always hear in the news or conversations people talking about company A is buying company B. And mm-hmm. there are all these things with, you know, company, company, company. And what gets overlooked quite often until you're actually in your own M&A transaction is that this is really a combination of people coming together, not companies. And is where the ideal out, outcome wants to be where if two parties come and merge together, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, but as with everything in human beings, there's always going to be some complexities that people don't think about. And that's where people like you come in with, you know, looking at not only the global uh, M&A transaction from a business perspective, but from a people's perspective. And so tell us, how did you get involved with, you know, HR in, in, in general and then with this kind of advisory service for mergers and acquisitions in particular? Sure, Definitely. Well, let me start first by talking about like a little bit what it is, HRMNA, because I don't I don't think always people always know. So in any transaction, whether it's an acquisition, a merger, divestiture, or even you know, corporate restructuring, there's always a huge people component. And this could be things like identifying and retaining key talent. So think about it. You purchase a company, you're buying some new space such as autonomous driving or robotics. If you were to lose those key developers, what have you bought, right? So you put millions, sometimes even billions of dollars at risk if you do not retain that talent. So we're very focused on the talent piece and really protecting the deal on the people side. And we tend to start from kind of that letter of intent stage where we look at things like retention pools, you know, terms for key employees, addressing change of control provisions. And then we go into areas such as the purchase agreement or due diligence. And all of that information helps us build an integration strategy around people. And then, of course, we go and further execute on that strategy. So we really try to tackle the people side from end to end on the transaction. And then how I got started. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) So it it goes a lot more than just, you know, paying, taking somebody's salary and doubling it, and then you guarantee you hold them. A little, little bit more complex exactly. than that. Exactly. And uh, definitely more complex than that. And interesting. That would be boring, right? So it's so much, yeah. it's so much more interesting. Yeah. Um, and then you would ask me about how I got started. And it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, that when I started doing this, there was no HR field or people component to transactions. We were all focused on more operational and, and really around kind of the technology. And, you know, we just didn't address the people side. So I was lucky enough to, during the dot-com boom, to join Cisco Systems. I spent about 11 years there doing M&A. And Cisco always realized kind of that secret sauce around the people side. Um, you would, I mean, it's amazing the kind of talent that you can get through an acquisition that would never walk through your door, right? This is mm-hmm. so unique. And when people start realizing how important that is, you can see where acquisitions become such a key part of your inner, inorganic growth. Um, so I was really fortunate that that gave me a chance for those 11 years 
to learn so much about this and really get to know that the how important in all the elements of the the people side of integration. That happens a lot where there were you know stories about Silicon Valley where you've got chance meetings where you know various people come together that in in any other environment they wouldn't come together. I think the same happens with with organizations like Cisco where if there's there's an acquisition or or some other larger company they bring in people that probably didn't think they they'd ever make it in there. And then not only do they get in exactly. there but in the right situation they thrive. Yeah, exactly. Huge opportunities for folks. Well, that's fantastic. Now, you're an expert with managing the people components and acquisitions. Why is it so important to understand HR in a, you know, with, with M&A? You know, it's, it's interesting. So I was looking. There's a lot of obviously really smart people, right, that identify great target companies. You know, they put together amazing strategies, um, solid financials, a great valuation model. So we do all of this work, right? Everything looks beautiful. You can even have a step-by-step integration plan. And then you wonder, why do so many of them fail? There's something there, right? This, all this work that's done looks perfect laid out on paper, but there's an element to all of this, to making it work. And I truly believe that's that people component. Because you can't purposely predict everything about people. There's all these different elements, the motivations, the interests. So this is really where we play it. And it's what makes it so interesting because it's different on every deal. But it's so critical to get the employees aligned and productive as quickly as possible. It's such a critical part that we spend time, that we really focus on with the employee piece of everything. And I think one thing on the employee side that we really try to tackle early is sort of the personal concerns. So what's it, you know, what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. So I think it, in, in acquisition, if you think about it, you're going through a big change. And it could be any change that you're going through, whether it's the restructure. Um, the very first thing that every person considers is what does that mean to me? What's my job? What's my title? What's my pay and my benefits? And if we don't early tackle that right away, they're going to be looking for another job. And someone else is going to be more than happy to tell them their job, their new job, their new title, and their new pay. Mm-hmm. So we really take that as kind of the core beginning. And we focus on their personal concerns. And we follow sort of their, their concerns in the way that we move them through the process. So we sequence it very much on what they're going to be focused on so we can move them through that whole acquisition change from end to end as quickly as possible and make them productive. And that's really the key is focusing first on getting their answers. Then we look at how do they do their job. Then we go further on how do you work together. Those are the, you know, following that process makes you much more effective. You know, if you were to talk to an employee or a sales guy about, oh, let's work on training, but we haven't told that sales guy what he's going to be compensated on, He's never going to do it, right? He's never going to focus. And honestly, that's actually one of the biggest areas I see people make mistakes. You know, you've built in all these wonderful assumptions on selling or lifting up your sales area, um, starting out, and you've never told your sales team what they're going to be, how are they going to be compensated on those new products. And so, of course, what do they do? They don't focus on them and they don't sell them. So for us, this is such a key critical area so that we can ensure we can execute against uh, those assumptions that were built into the original model. No, you can't get over. That's just a, a primal self-preservation instinct that everybody has is, you know, there is a big change. And a lot of people fear change. There is a big change. What's going to happen to me? And immediately go off worst case scenario, you address that. You have a system. You guys have developed a system because you're not dealing with five or ten employees at a time. You're dealing in some cases with thousands of employees. How do you handle yeah. that? It's hard. Um, <laughs> and so it's really, I feel like a lot of times looking at that, kind of that top down, so you're really starting with leadership. 
because they've already built the relationships. So if you can leverage those relationships with the key leaders in the organization, they can be your advocate. They can go out and work with the team. So, you know, rather than just us trying to tackle everybody, we really try to go in and understand the network that drives that organization and then leverage it, right? Leverage the leaders they look up to, the people that influence them, and help those guys continue to lead through the process and help them make some of those decisions with us so that they can move the employees forward because they know their team and their team trusts no, they become them. The multiple, yeah, they're like your multipliers where they can they're go out exactly. and talk to dozens of them. For, and, they know, and they know the people and the people know them and have the trust. Yeah, okay. yeah we can't build that right away. Yeah. There now there there's a the there's a term out here that a lot of people may attribute to the millennials, but you and I both know this has been around for a long time. And that's culture. Uh and the the culture of a company and a lot of people have a preconceived notion of it largely from, you know, a recent uh iterations of it. but talk to me about uh bringing two companies together that have starkly different cultures. Talk about that and then what what someone like you does to help bridge that gap. Well, I think it's important first to understand, you know, how they're different. And actually, let me even take a step back. I would say I, it's so hard because I won't take that word culture now because it becomes a soft, fluffy thing, right? And the business yeah. leader says, oh, that's important, but you know, I really need to get to business. And But what I really want to point out is that that culture drives the business right? And if you can harness it, it becomes amazing what you can do in the business. And if you don't, it can hinder the business. So when we put a, we put culture out there, we kind of hand it off maybe to that HR team or somebody else, we forget how important those elements are to really driving the business. And to give a, a really good example, I looked at, I worked with two companies that we brought together and one company built products, right? And, and they would kind of throw them out in the market and see who, you know, who would take those and run with them, right? How did they do? They kind of threw it out there. You could see they were huge risk takers. Um, the way they made decisions were different. They would, you know, work together, more collaborative, kind of throw it out there. Their budgets weren't always perfect, right? Because if you throw something out there to see if it works, right, you don't know if you're going to be successful. So your budget varies a little. You had another company um, that was, I mean, honestly, they built exactly what their customer wanted. So that's very low risk. Very, It was very top-down. It was very much... Um, your go-to-market strategy was so different. You tended, your failure rate was very low because you were building what they wanted. So when you bring these two organizations together, even though you might have the leader saying, oh, it's all about the customer, we're the same. When you get to it and you put them together, they're not the same. They're very different in the way they make decisions, the way they communicate, the way they budget, the way they work together. So as soon as you put those cultures together, everything slows down because they are so different. So we yeah, tackle well, I, those I, pieces. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that situation where you want to get out to market. Let's go now. Let's go now. We'll just we'll test it while we're doing it. And the other side, we want yeah. some more tests before. We, and and that, exactly. you, you get that grind and stuff and and so. But I, I'm sorry for interrupting. But please continue. No, well, I was going to say, think how frustrating that is for somebody on one side. Was like, oh my god, you want to know what? I'm like, look, let's just ta- we'll just throw it. You're we're fine. We'll get there. And the other one's like, oh my gosh, you know, it. Not only do you slow down the business, you leave two totally you know, disenfranchised, frustrated groups of people, all really with good intent to get something done. And they just don't have the right tools. And that's where we really try to dig into those business elements of culture that really help drive things and what they mean and getting the team very focused together and and actually just understanding how they are different and then leveraging some of those differences and the similarities. 
Yeah, it's a lot more than just a dress code. I, I you're that's the one yeah. thing that always impressed me when when you talked about culture was it's not where one one side is casual, the other one dresses formally every day. It is issues like you know execution if they're going to be very deliberate and steady and and, and conscientious about their pace, where others are let's go, let's just try it and see how it goes. And so forth. Exactly. Is there is there a way of bridging that, or just you know manage? Is it is it as simple as just managing expectations between the management teams, or what do you think? It's funny. I, the very first thing is just make you know, getting out there so they do have those expectations. People are very adaptable, and if they understand that that person's going to approach it differently, and they can at least see it through that lens, it does help. I do think though, going beyond that, you need to get some clarity around how those decisions are going to be made as an organization, how you're going to work together, where, you know, so it's actually sort of almost coming like a go forward plan with those elements of culture that drive things. Are decisions going to be top down or are they going to be collaborative, right, across? So I think you almost have to take both, come together and, and agree around what that culture is going to be like. And it's funny, you mentioned the dress code. I, by the way, I have gotten burned, though. <laughs> you take away <laughs> some important things and you're like, whoa. But I agree, it's more than that. That is, but I try never to forget that piece too and only focus on business. I remember that people are there for other reasons, right? Little things they love that make coming to work amazing and you don't want to forget and take those away because that's exactly what they expect you to do day one. So I'm always mm. extremely careful on both fronts. Yes, why can't I bring my pet my pet snake to yeah. work with me? But, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's gone beyond dogs and cats, believe me. Uh, yeah, God. With with you know a, as these things are developing, is there a I don't know if it'd be a single is there a single point where you know mergers on the HR side where they just some people struggle and then other people just do really really well? Is, is it just losing a human yeah. component? What what would you say? Yeah, you know I I actually think sometimes it starts so in terms of working with acquisitions. You do need to pick a team that around you that's going to be driving it, that has the right kind of emotional maturity. You are, as a team, helping drive that integration and that acquisition. You're in a very stressful environment. You're around a lot of people going through high levels of stress. You're working with founders of this company or on the other side, you're, you know, or you're carving out a group and selling. So I, I sometimes look at the teams that people pick to help drive these. And, I, and I'll admit, I question, why did they choose that person, right? You need to get the right team there. Not only do you need a team with good expertise about doing it so they can anticipate the red flags and the issues, you need somebody who's going to be able to balance those up and ups and downs. They have to be able to figure out how to make things work, their solution. They're looking for solutions and solving things. They work quickly, um, but yet still have patience because they have to understand you've got a lot of different views going on. You've got a lot of people with concerns. You've got a lot of people that feel like you're stepping on their territory and you have mm -hmm. to understand it. So it's funny. We pick, we just sometimes honestly in a company, just pull any person and put them in charge of it without really thinking about what's the best person to lead that organization, help drive it to bring that right emotional maturity to get this deal done. Because it's a very political environment when you buy a company, both sides, and you need the right people. How, how does uh, a firm like EY, how do you get introduced to a deal? How do they? Are they people just come come to their senses and say we we're overheads. Yeah. We need some advisory services. You know, yeah. boom. How how does yeah. how do you get how do you get worked into the deal? I laugh. I always think it's it's after someone's gone through one. No, because then they're like, oh my god, I don't want to go through that part again. 
Um, because you really get how I always laugh at people's side, right? People are like, oh, that should part should be easy, right? We spend all this time financial modeling and doing everything and building this fully integrated plan and our product portfolio strategy. And, and then when they get to actually executing on it, they're like, oh my God, this guy's driving me crazy or this deal, this company, they don't want to listen to us. They won't do what we say, you know, and they're so frustrated in the end by all the elements of the people component, right? Because it, they, people don't follow always a perfectly laid plan and everything doesn't perfectly fall into exactly what you wanted them to do. So I think it's our, my favorite folks to work with are ones are folks that have just gone through it and are doing it again. And they're like, this time I get what you're saying, right? I understand what you're talking about. It's not just, hey, here's our benefits, move on. There's all these elements to it and the way you design the organization, how much autonomy you give that company or how much, in, how integrated they are, but without losing the elements that make them interesting and amazing as a company. So I think that having gone through it, that's when they tend to reach out Others who have been in other companies who have done deals know. So when they're in there for the first time, they're actually, you know, that they usually right away will reach out. And I tend to, even though I'm on kind of that HR side, I actually tend to work first with Corp Dev, kind of one of my okay. key partners, because the, the structuring in the front end of the deal is actually very heavy people focused. A lot around, you know, how are you going to tie in these, these key employees? Some of them making huge amounts of money, but you need to get them to stay. So if you are not structuring the deal at that point in a way to entice them to stay and help be, help you be successful um, or getting them for a period to transition and then exiting, I mean, like you want to be the one making the decisions if you're doing that deal. And on the other side, you know, I always talk about the buyer side, but on the seller side, you know, I think it's really important for them to be thinking through what they want. What we forget is you get so busy doing the deal that you actually forget to take a moment to think about, wait a minute, what is it I want and what do I want for my team? Because I'm so, you know, you, I felt this when we were, when we went through our acquisition, I, I felt like it was, you know, was so worried about, you know, customer contracts and other things, getting everything ready. I forgot to step back for a moment and say, wait a minute, as a leadership team, as, you know, with my employees, like, where do we want to be? How is this going to work for us? And just getting that on the table very early. Yeah, I, 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 I sense that we're maybe as a seller, reality starts smacking you in the face as you're going through the process, you're going through due diligence, then all of a sudden it's like, I've had these people with me for 10, yeah. 20 years, or I've had people maybe less than that, but they took a chance and stayed with me for six, the last six or seven years when we really didn't have a lot of prospect. Now we can't just let them go. You know, they, yeah. that that's a big component out there that does, isn't done initially. No, and they're and honestly, they're the ones that are going to help make you successful, right? So if you're the founder and you're you're the leadership team, you need that other circle around you to be successful as you go forward. So you need them locked in and committed just as much as you are. So taking that time to stop, step back and think about what about that retention pool I need? How I'm going to make sure they're committed and locked in with me because I can't go do this without them. You know, that's, it's a really important piece. And it, it is, it's that last moment. You're like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. You're about to sign. You're worried. You're like, hold on. Have I thought of everything? So I, that, we even ran into it ourselves when we were going through it. Um, but I think if you step back, put that early on, because I think that will help you get everything in place. And it'll be so important when you announce to employees and you've already taken care of the folks you need to, to really drive it forward. They're going to be your champions and your spokespersons just as much as, as you are. I think with Corp Dev, the big the big issue there is there, you know, with, with corporate development, there are no mergers. There's just acquisitions. But they, yeah. you know, they <laughs> yeah. they keep the, the the ones that do it right. They keep the attitude, uh, as you said earlier. They've got a very productive 
you know, attitude out there. They, they work with themselves. You've got founders out there that from that side of the table, you know, this is their big exit. This is their big, uh, you know, ascent to the mountaintop. There's a lot of fear because there's change. And there's also just a lot of, you're going into the unknown. And the more that I think corporate development can step forward and be proactive and, easing their comfort by taking care of the HR component so successfully and being mm-hmm. so organized and not being on the fly, uh, but anticipating some problems and then having a, a variety of solutions, you know, for retention, for the other stuff, to maintain the culture, to be aware that that's got to really take a lot of stress out of the equation for the, for the, for the founder. Yeah, it really does. And, and for the company, you know, you may wonder, oh, gosh, doing all this extra stuff, what does it really mean? But you know what it means? It gives you a reputation in the market of a good mm-hmm. acquirer. And so when you, when this company is out there looking to sell themselves, right, and they come to you, but they're looking at somebody else, do you have a reputation of taking care of your folks, whether they stay or leave? Like if you offboard, you do it just as well as you onboard because that, is, you know, the valley is too small here and across the technology across the U.S. I mean, we know all the tech hubs and we know the people there. It's a smaller community when you think about it. So your reputation can make a difference in helping you actually get one of those companies to, to choose you over somebody else. It's a really, I do think it's very important, your market presence. I also think the market, the better you do this, the more they're going to trust you when you decide to take a step out of your comfort zone, right? Like you've always bought small companies, but you know what? We're going to buy a big one. And if you're doing it really well, they're going to have a little more faith in you each time. It has less, creates less volatility for you as the market looks at you. They're like, okay, we understand. They've done it before. They'll do it. They'll be able to do it. Oh, that's that just that, the market. That, that's, the, that's the added value that comes in, not only with reducing the stress and, and having, having a successful deal go through, but it's, it's you know, doing what you can to improve your market your 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 reputation out there market because then you can buy more for less essentially down the road. That's exactly that's exactly you know people and it's interesting people will choose you for a lower price for other things that you're doing for them. You know it's not going to be super low you're not going to huge it but the point is they will and they will come to you first as even potential so someone else may never even get the opportunity to put a bid in for that company because that company already wants you to be the buyer. Oh, that's that's cool, and and you just you bring in a, a an organization like yours for for EY. Is there is there a size um, type transaction? What's your metric for where where you welcome and entertain deals? What's your wheelhouse? Give us a range. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. Um, I'll give you kind of example. So we have, especially I would say here in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of serial acquirers. And um, so what they might bring us in um, for is to do something that's new or they just get overloaded. So if they're going into a new space or they're looking at, you know, a different market, so a little concerning, right, you want to take a few more, you want to be a little more careful and thoughtful in your process on those. Um, Or your companies who have recently IPO'd, they're a great example because you know your growth is going to be through some of that inorganic growth. And so coming early and saying, and, and to be honest, right, you've got an IPO, you're growing fast, you've got a lot of going on internally anyways. So you're usually mm-hmm. low, real, real low staff. And so having that help, we're a great help there because we can go in, help build sort of that M&A strategy to be very effective and over time training and, and leaving that knowledge behind with their teams as they scale their own business. Um, so those are really kind of those key areas that we play. And of course, in the large transactions, you know, you'll see that now with all the, the very big companies that are buying other large companies, you know, technically the mergers. And um, you, you do need almost a middle, how do I want to say it, 
kind of a, a unbiased party in there <laughs> to you help. Want, you want that? You want that independent yeah. third party coming in <laughs> yeah. that, that can be diplomatic and send and yeah. receive signals both ways. I I, I find that because sure. the emotion goes get, can run so hot in these in these oh. things that you know so true. The, the wrong word or the wrong expression all of a sudden can derail or or push back timelines. And you just sometimes you need somebody out there that that's a trusted sounding board that's not gonna. You know, exactly. go ahead and, you know, rat you out to the other side on, on what you're thinking, but, you know, give you a real good perspective. And you've been doing, you know, not small, not small deals. So you've seen yep. the, the most complex and then you've seen the other ones that's straightforward that sometimes the small ones can get complex because they're just not handled right. Yeah, no, so that's exactly. Um, no, that's exactly. It, uh, other than being prepared, is there any other one piece of advice you can give to somebody who's a, uh, probably in corporate development that may not have used you or where they're looking at a target and they're eyeing it and it could be some, some HR issues there and they may not have used you? What's the number one piece of advice you could give to somebody in that situation? Yeah, I mean, one, one to be honest, you can always reach out. I'm always happy to just have a conversation and share my experience. I actually, I really love this stuff. <laughs> what amazes people, they're like, seriously? Because some of this stuff gets messy and ugly. It's fun. Um, they do because they learn something new every deal. It, it still amazes me. Um, but I'm always happy to talk about it and just share best practices, things I've learned over the years. Um, but I do think actually stepping back and it's so hard. You get so excited about a deal. So I think when people are just getting into this, you've got to find a way to to be really conservative in your view early on. Test your theories and bring somebody who's almost your naysayer. Because I find sometimes when you're first going in, you're so excited about the opportunity that deal brings, you tend to overlook all of those possible issues. They don't seem so bad. We'll get to them later. So we'll get to them later because they always come up. Um, so I think it's helpful to pull in that HR counterpart or someone to really push you on your on your areas that you've, you know, kind of your key assumptions and your decisions you've made so that you take a step back because it is very exciting for that first deal and how much it could change your business that you do tend to, I don't know, just sort of blow off early on some of those red flags that come back to bite you later. Absolutely. I, I think the the, uh, the simplistic thing is as your eyes are dazzling, you see these great opportunities, yeah. manage your expectations. And exactly. uh, I, I see I'm an optimist by nature, so I always look at the, the, the very shiny rainbow. But you don't have to have somebody as a pessimist, but you do need somebody that kind of helps kind of manage those expectations. So yeah. uh, very helpful. This has all been very helpful. Great viewpoint from a side that a lot of people hadn't even thought of. Sherry, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, I think always look for me through LinkedIn. I'm on there. I think they can email me directly as well to Sherry. Y-O-C-U-M, so S-H-A-R-I dot Y-O-C-U-M at E-Y dot com. Um, yeah, always feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to talk about anything. That's fantastic. And it's E-Y, which I guess Ernst & Young was just too much of a mouthful for the partner. So they, they, <laughs> they got so happy efficient. To <laughs> Don't you love it? I love it. E-Y, well, they, 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 two letters. They got the good website. They, they got the URL address, <laughs> exactly. so good for them. So, so that worked out. Oh. Well, Sherry, thank, thank you very much. I hope we talk again soon. Sounds great. Thank you.